And we're going to continue now with the story with Genesis 31 and verses 11 and 13 and uh, forward. In this case, we are seeing Jacob fleeing from his uh, brother Laban, and he's arriving after he saw the. Uh, that is, after he, he lived for quite a while uh, with Laban, and he was uh, deceived by Laban and cheated by him, and finally got to the point where he had to flee, and it was about a period of 20 years. And he gathered all of his uh, wives and children, and this is basically what he's telling them about the difficult time that he had, which they were fully aware of. And he's telling them in uh, verse 11 of chapter 31, Then the angel of God spoke to me in a dream, saying, Jacob. And I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift your eyes now and see all the rams which leap on the flocks are spit, speckled, and gray spotted. For I, I, that is the angel speaking to him, I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. Now, see something very interesting here. In verse 11, he's telling us, Jacob, that is, he's telling his wives, the angel of God spoke to me. So he's calling him the angel of God. And in verse 13, this angel of God says, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now arise, get out of this land, and return to the land of your family. And as I said earlier, uh, the angel of the Lord, oftentimes, is not speaking about just any other angel, but in this specific case, God is already revealing to us from the beginning of time, as he did from Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, there are two beings. And one as time went by, uh, the one that dealt personally with the people of God, with Adam and Eve and all those that came after, and Noah and Moses and so forth, he revealed himself in several places, in many places, in very plain words, that he is the angel of the Lord. In other words, that he is the angel of the one that became later on the Father, and he is the one that was sent by him as his messenger. And that's in essence what you read also in, in Malachi and uh, chapter 3, actually toward the, the end of it. But in the beginning of it, uh, he speaks about uh, the messenger of the Lord and so forth. That is the Malachi. And here again, this is what we see here, but that's not the point that I'm trying to make now. And uh, let's continue in verse 13 again. As I said, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar, and where you made a vow to me. Now arise, get out of this land, and return to the land of your family. And so God is telling him that he's going to be with him, and he's appearing as the angel of the Lord. That means the messenger of God. And he himself... Later on, as we read in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, that is the messenger of God, the Word of God, uh, who called himself by many other names, the Lord of hosts, the captain, and, uh, and so forth. And uh, this God now who is dealing directly with Jacob, as he dealt with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that's a, this is the God that came and ate lunch with Abraham, and this is what he's telling him that he's going to be with him. He's never going to forsake him. And then we go to uh, chapter 32 and verses 22 and to 30, chapter 32, verses 22. We begin uh, at this point. We read about Jacob who arrived at the river Yabok, or Jabok in English, 
and he was going, he was about to cross it. He heard earlier that his brother Esau, who didn't sound or didn't look at least uh, too hospitable, and he was coming with 400 of his men, and he, Jacob was very afraid because he realized what he had done to him. And by now, Jacob is a different person, and yet Esau is still the same person, and he's very much afraid that Esau is going to use those 400 men to basically kill Jacob and everything that he has. And so he's praying to God, he's sending, he's using also wisdom at the same time, and he's sending uh, his wives and his children ahead of him, and then he stayed by himself. And so we read in verse 22, And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed over the ford of Yabok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now, who is that man? Before that, we read about the angel of the Lord, who appeared to him, and uh, that angel claimed that he is the God of Bethel. And now we read about Jacob wrestling with a man, and we're going to find out pretty soon who that man is. Verse 25, Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, that is, the man that wrestled with him, gave it to Jacob, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, that is, the man that wrestled with him, for the dead breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now, what would Jacob say to a man that he wrestles with, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Obviously, Jacob fully realizes whom he's dealing with, you see. But the way the account is written, the way God is recording it to Moses, is in this manner. Because he's revealing himself also as a God who appears as an angel of the Lord, and at times he comes as a man, and he deals with men, and he eats with men, and he wrestles with men. And that's why he chose that terminology. And so Jacob, fully aware of who that person is, this is basically what he says to him. I will not let you go until you bless me. And only God can bless. An angel cannot bless. A man cannot bless. A man can just provoke, or that is, uh, call upon God to bless someone else, but he himself cannot bless. And so Jacob fully realized that he's dealing with God. That is the one who is the messenger of the one that is in heaven, above him, let on to be revealed as the Father. And so in verse 27, we read, So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, or Israel. Uh, Israel means to struggle with, or to wrestle with. Israel. For you have struggled with God, and with man, and have prevailed. And Jacob was struggling with Laban. That's the man he's talking about. And God, that's himself. So he said, he struggled with God, that is me, and with men. And you prevailed. Verse 29, Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And oftentimes the people that met God wanted to know his name. And Moses, when he appeared before God in Mount Sinai, when it says the angel of the Lord appeared to him from the bush, he also wanted to know the name of God, so he can tell the people of Israel what is his name. In other words, as God told Moses in Exodus chapter 6 and verse 2, that in the days of old, people did not know his name. They just knew him by El Shaddai, the deity that provides, that nourishes. But they did not know his 
personal name, and he did not reveal it to them. And so Abraham wanted to know, and uh, for whatever reason, we don't know. God did not reveal it to him or to Isaac, and so Jacob is asking for the same thing, not knowing the name of God. It's only later on that God chose to reveal his name, and Moses was the first one that he revealed his name to. And so it says, when Jacob asked, tell me, what is your name, I pray? And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So, God, so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. In other words, Pni, which means face of, and El, God. And so what is, this is what he did. What he did. It said that he, he called the name of the place Peniel for, the reason for that is, for I have seen God, Elohim, face to face. And my life is preserved. So he's making it very plain. And God is making it very plain. As he's recording it for the wise. Those who do not have that understanding because they've been blinded, because they've been taught lies, because they've been taught misconceptions and given misinformation, now are at a point where they have a very difficult time, even though they read it, to understand those very plain words. Once we've been deceived and lied and been, been taught all kinds of lies, then when the truth is presented to us, we don't seem to be able to have the capacity to see it for what it is, unless God opens our eyes to see it, unless we're just subjective people and have nothing in the background that clouds our vision. And so God makes it very plain that he's the man that appeared as the angel of the Lord to Jacob, and he spoke to Jacob, and he blessed him, and then he told him, I'm the God of Bethel, so that's very plain. And those who have faith have no problem believing, but those who don't, because they've been misled all their lives into another faith, they have a difficult time, and that's basically where they, the people of Judah are. They have a very difficult time understanding that, and I can understand that. I used to be one who had a difficult time until their, their eyes are opened, then you can see what God says, and you have no difficulty at that time. In other words, when God gives you his faith, then you can see it. And God gave Jacob faith. And so Jacob could see all these things, and he had no problems at this point. And Jacob was being uh, changed in many ways. And now God even gave him the ultimate test, so to speak. He had to struggle with him all night and never give up. And Jacob knew who that person was. And he knew it was not just a man. That's why he asked him to bless him. That's why he asked him for his name. And that's why he finally said those words. By calling the place of the name Pniel, the face of God, the reason for it was because he had seen him face to face, just like his father, that is his grandfather Abraham, and I'm sure Isaac also, but mainly Abraham who walked with him and spoke to him and saw him face to face and ate with him. And so now Jacob, since the promises and the covenants are going to be all passed on to him, and he knew it very well, therefore now God comes to him and establishes the covenant with him and later on with his descendants, that is, his children, the twelve sons that he had. And so, uh, verse 31, Just as he crossed over Penuel, or Peniel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore to this day the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrunk, which is on the hip socket, because he touched, that means God, touched the socket, of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrunk. So the children of Israel knew very well who that person was. You see, knowledge was there, but as time went by, 
as uh, God told Isaiah, uh, because they rebel against me, they reject my laws and commandments, they hate light, like in chapter uh, 5 of Isaiah, it says they call light darkness, that means they call the truth lies, and they call lies truth. Because of that, he says, I'm going to blind them. In chapter 29 of Isaiah, he said, the wisdom of their wives shall perish. And so as time went by, they got into greater and greater and greater darkness. By the time Jesus Christ was on the scene, they were so in much in darkness that when they saw him face to face, they could not know who that person was. That he was the one, though he came and performed mighty signs and wonders and miracles in their sight and resurrected the dead and did all those things, yes, true, an awful lot of people followed after him and knew that he was the Messiah and the son of David, uh, but uh, very few of them really had an understanding that he was truly the one that walked with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that was truly the son of God. Yes, they realized he came from God, but they did not fully comprehend what it meant. Even his own disciples had a difficult time with that. But then, the faith gradually disappeared from the heart and the minds of Judah, because God removed that wisdom from them that even their wives, the wisdom of their wives, perished. At least many of them, not all of them. And so that's what we see here. But in, that, in either case, the promises were given to all of them. And in verse 28, I'd like to make a point here. Uh, when he said, uh, the angel said to him, that is God, appearing now as a man. Uh, angel, or what it means, angel is basically a messenger. And a messenger can be God himself, if he's sent by another God. And he said, your name, that is, he said to Jacob, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, that is, supplanter, one that, that holds you by the heel, that's what Yaakov means, comes from the word akev, which means heel in Hebrew. And remember, when he was born, he was holding uh, the heel as he came out of Esau, as if to, uh, to uh, demonstrate what kind of nature he had. In other words, he's not playing fair. And God tells him, your name shall no longer be Jacob. In other words, your nature is no longer going to be that of a supplanter. who's trying to get by deceivious, by, that is, by dece- deceitful manner and devious uh, ways what you want. He said, from now on, you're going to do it the right way, face to face, the fair way, the, right, the righteous way. And so he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, that is, you have struggled with God, a person who struggles with God when he wants something. And that message God is giving not only to Jacob himself, but to all those of his descendants. That every single one of us is going to have to go through that process. We're going to learn to do things just like Jacob finally had to learn. But when you want something in life, you don't get it the wrong way. You don't get it by deceiving people. You don't get it by using the weaknesses of people, because at the time of weakness of Esau, when he was very hungry, that's when Jacob asked for the birthright. And when Esau was not around, that's when he pretended to be Esau and got the birthright, and so forth. And so he gave him somebody to teach him a lesson, and that was his father-in-law Laban, because he deceived him constantly. Jacob learned the lesson, and that's how we learn lessons. When we are confronted or are being given a taste of our own medicine, and Jacob had plenty of it from Laban, and so he learned a lot also, besides the fact that God appeared to him and opened his eyes and helped him to see things otherwise. 
And so God is giving a message now to Jacob and to all of his descendants. He had to come to the point where he shall no longer be Jacob, but become Israel. That means struggle with God. Struggle with God by walking with him and obedience to him and praying to him and, and walking with him. Then you shall get everything you want in life. And so that's a very important point. In other words, for all of us to be partakers of the covenant of the fathers, we too have to follow in the footsteps of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who all struggled with God and walked with God and did things the right way. And that's a part of the covenant. If you will obey my voice and commandments, then I shall give you all these things. So that is very important to remember. And so let's go now to chapter 35, where we're going to continue with the story in verse 1. This is what we read. Then Jacob, at this point, was being called by God to, uh, to prepare uh, for a relationship with him, including all of his family also, and to put away whatever foreign gods his family had, because remember, when they fled from Laban, uh, Rachel stole the gods of uh, her father, because they were not totally walking in righteousness and in the light. They had a mixture of the knowledge of God, and also... Unfortunately, as an example of all the children of Israel in the years to come, they had a mixture of the knowledge of God and idolatry. And we are also, and many of us, without even realizing, we are finding ourselves in the same category also. We may have an awful lot of the knowledge of God, we may fear God and obey God, but at the same time we have things that are not of God, and God calls it Babylon. And therefore he commands us, as he's commanding at this point, Jacob and his family, come out of this kind of Babylon, of this confusion, of a mixture of truth and error, of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so in chapter 35 we read, Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel. Bethel, that is the house of God. That's the place where, God, where Jacob first met God when he had that dream. And he says, Go to that place. Because remember, he sanctified the stone there and he... And he uh, called it the house of God. So God says, you go to that place and dwell there. Live in that area now. In other words, come to a closer relationship with me, you and your, all of your family. And he says, and make an altar there to God. So wherever God places his name, this is where you can build an altar. That is, to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. That is, the God that appeared to him on top of the ladder. That later on said, I'm, uh, later on Jacob said of him that he was the angel of God, and then that angel introduced himself as the God of Bethel. In verse 2, and Jacob said to his household, and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you, which are not really gods, and purify yourselves and change your garments. In other words, cleanse yourself, purge yourself, purify yourself both in your body, physically and also spiritually. And you remember later on, when the children of Israel were commanded to come before Mount Sinai to receive the law and to have a relationship with God, and in essence to enter into the marriage covenant, this is exactly what God told Moses. He'd go down there and he tell them to wash their garments, because we must never appear before God without being washed and cleansed and purged and purified physically and spiritually. And so that lesson would always be there. And you see to the end of time. When people appear before, the, before God and before Jesus Christ, and some of them uh, appear uh, with a garment that is not righteousness, and it's not white, and it's not washed, so to speak, from their spots and blemishes and sins and nicarism and Babylonish 
concepts. Uh, this is what God tells them. Well, you get out of this place, you don't have the right garments. You don't belong here. And so it's important for us to remember, uh, learn uh, lessons from all these. You see, these are all spiritual lessons that we read here. And uh, unfortunately, later on, uh, false church taught that everything in the Old Testament, generally speaking, is not spiritual, but now in the New Testament, everything is spiritual, which is utter foolishness. It shows how Babylonish it is. A mixture of truth and error. But God tells us very plain, plainly here, a concept that is totally spiritual. That when we appear before God, you have to be clean and pure in your garments and physically. And people, when they appear before God on the Sabbath, are to do likewise. They are to wash their body and cleanse and purify themselves and anoint themselves and put their best garments on as they appear before God. And yet many people, even in our midst, going back to the Babylonish concepts, uh, unfortunately, where uh, you come as you are before God. And that is not pleasing in the sight of God. And God does not acknowledge that and does not accept that and reject that. And does not accept that kind of worship from these kind of people that have no respect for him when they appear before him. And likewise, you see, with the high priest, God made a point. You are going to wear this kind of clothes that do not make you sweat. You are going to wash your body. You are going to anoint your body. And you, then you come before me. And he made it very plain that if you do it otherwise, where you don't pay attention to my instructions... And they do not come before me clean and pure. You will die. As plainly as that. You can read it in Leviticus. And in Exodus, where God made it very plain. And basically, he wants us to learn lessons. The physical things that we do have spiritual connotation. And therefore, we ought to do both. Glorify God in our body and in our mind. That's the constant command from the beginning until the end. And so that's basically what he's telling Jacob. You're going to wash yourself, purify yourself, remove the gods, remove everything that is not of me, remove all the Babylonian concepts that you have, because after all, this is where they came from. And just recently, Jacob, not too long ago, and his family returned from where? From the land of Syria, which was up there above Babylon, where they had Babylonish concepts too. And so this is what he's telling them. In verse 3, then let us arise and go up to Bethel. This is what Jacob tells his family. And I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who had been with me in the way which I, get, which I had gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands. And he asked himself the questions, what on earth is the, the family of Jacob doing? Having foreign gods with them where he is a servant of God. Well, it shows you what happens uh, when you live in the midst of Babylon for too long. You, you know, you have inroads into the family. And sometimes we don't realize that in the midst of righteousness, we oftentimes find wickedness. And in our own midst, likewise, we have to examine ourselves and to see whether we have foreign gods in our midst. And God would not tell us to come out of Babylon unless we have foreign gods in our midst and foreign teachings. And so he says, you give them to me. Uh, so he took it from their hands and the earrings which were in their ears because those things had religious connotations also and Jacob hid them under the turban tree which was by Shechem and it's interesting that he didn't burn them just to totally get rid of them he just hid them in the ground well maybe that's the only thing he could do at the time and they journeyed 
And the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. In other words, that was the time when God was calling him out of uh, out of uh, Shechem. Remember the, the story of Dinah, where she went out, and the sons of uh, Jacob, Levi and, uh, and Simeon, Levi, Shimon in Hebrew, where they went and killed all the men of the city, and uh, Jacob was pretty scared and was running for his life. And it was at that time when God called him and his whole family to a fellowship and to a relationship with him. Because he was going now to make the covenant not only with Jacob, which he already did, but also with his own family. Where in time past, you see that God made the covenant with Abraham and, uh, and Sarah, uh, but not with, uh, with uh, Hagar or with uh, Ishmael. And then uh, with Isaac, he made it with Isaac but not with Esau, and, and then later on God made it directly with Jacob, but not it with his family. At this point, he's bringing his family into the covenant, because now he's going to make something very unique. Of the family of Jacob, it wasn't of the family of Abraham, because he had many sons, or of Isaac, where he could have given him more sons, but it is of Jacob, who, whose name he changed to Israel, he was going to have a very unique relationship. He's going to give him many descendants, and he's going to marry his descendants, that particular family, and all the sons, and they were going to be his wife, they were going to be his, in English, church. The only church that he ever recognized, and the only family that he said, you only of all the families of the earth have I known. And so, we continue to read in verses 9 to 12, Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. That means that's the way your name has been all this time. Even though earlier he already changed his name. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, and I speak into the whole family too. But Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And now he's confirming what he said earlier to him. Verse 11 and also God said to him, I am God Almighty. That is, I am El Shaddai. Just like he told Moses later on in Exodus 6 and verse 3. That he appeared to the Father by that name only, but not by his proper name, personal name, Yehovah. Uh, that again, that name that later on, as time went by, when the wisdom of the wise perished, they stopped using even that name and called it a blasphemy to even pronounce a name which is not of God. God never said, don't pronounce my name, he just said, don't take it in vain when you do. And so he tells him, I am God Almighty, that is, I am El Shaddai, that means I am the deity that nourishes you, that provides for you, because that's what it means, it doesn't mean Almighty. Uh, and he says, be fruitful and multiply, you see, I'm the one that nourishes you, now you can fr be fruitful and multiply, that's a direct result of the fact that you are being nourished. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. And the land, in verse 12, which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give to you. It's only God who can give the land, so he's passing it on. The covenant is being passed on. It goes on, as God told Abraham from the beginning, I'm going to make this covenant with you and with your descendants in their generations. So on a, on a generational basis, God is renewing this covenant especially when people depart from God and then he has to bring them back and then he has to all over again. 
repeat this covenant before them and renew the covenant with them and bring them back into the covenant and obedience to the covenant. And he says, and I will make, I will give it to you and to your descendants, not only to you, and to your descendants after you, I give this land. And then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. And so Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel, which he already did earlier, as we read in Genesis 28 and verse 19. But here now you see God is uh, repeating and confirming, reconfirming the covenant, and this time not only with Jacob, but also with all of his family, because he had them purified and cleansed and purged from idolatry and from dirt, and their garments were being washed. And so God is now, in essence, basically what he's done here is what he's going to do later on with the extended family of Israel in Mount Sinai. So here it is, the first little Mount Sinai appearance before God. And God, when it says in verse 13, then God went up from him, that means that God was came down. And he was standing right there in front of him, and he was speaking to him. And he was speaking to his, to his uh, children, his sons and daughters, to all of his family, to all those that God called uh, on Jacob to bring before him. So here you see uh, uh, sort of uh, the type and the prototype of Mount Sinai. And some people read over that and don't even comprehend well what's happening here. You have exactly what is happening here, exactly what happened later on in Mount Sinai. Only there he came with signs and wonders and mighty, you know, powerful voices and uh, because he, he came to put his fear in the, in the hearts and the minds of the children of Israel who now were very, very many. But here it is on a personal basis. God came down, stood on the earth, spoke to Jacob, and spoke to his family, just like he came earlier many times and spoke in person to Abraham and then to Isaac. And now Jacob and the entirety of his household is privileged to stand before God to hear his voice and to enter into a relationship with him. So... In that sense, you can see that the marriage that happened later on in Sinai had, you might say, this, uh, maybe you can call this, uh, let's say, uh, the engagement, uh, which comes basically after the marriage, and both, both of them are more or less the same uh, ceremony, uh, but the mere fact that in both cases you're making total commitment to walk only with that, with that person. And so that is very interesting to see from that point of view. And then we continue to Genesis chapter 46 and verses 1 and 4, where we read more about the story of the true church of God and how God is constantly repeating those promises and making those covenants and renewing those covenants again and again and again, always, always with the people that came out of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in so many ways, and in personal ways, he does it too. And it's extremely important for us to understand that. Uh, if we are to understand who and what is the true church of God. And then in chapter 46, now Jacob is on his way to to uh, Egypt because he heard that his son Joseph is still there, whom God took earlier by the ways that, J- that Jacob, neither Jacob nor Joseph ever uh, perceived to be what they are going to be. In other words, it was through selling him into slavery uh, by uh, by this means, God was bringing him to Egypt, and then he exalted him later on after the punishment that he went through, 
and he made him the second to the, to the Pharaoh, and in that way he was able to deliver not only uh, his own people, his own family that came down to him, but also all of Egypt and all of the land of Canaan. And God had a purpose for these two nations. And it's interesting that later on, way down the road, when the Messiah returns, you're going to see a very unique relationship there between Egypt and Israel, where he says in Isaiah 19 uh, that there is going to be a nation of three, uh, of uh, Egypt and Israel in the center, and then uh, Syria or Syria at the top, and the three of them are going to walk together with God and be the people and the nations of God. And so you see this constant relationship back and forth. And so in verse, in chapter 46 and verse 1, we read, So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba. Beersheba means, uh, the air means uh, well, and Sheba means seven. Remember when, where Abraham made a covenant there and he called it Beersheba, and then Isaac did the same too with the Philistines. And offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And remember, it's not one sacrifice, it says sacrifices here, and probably he did seven. That was uh, oftentimes the custom of bringing seven special occasions. And that's exactly what Abraham and Isaac did. They brought, they had seven lambs there and they offered them as uh, sacrifices to make a covenant between them and the Philistines. Verse 2, Then God spoke to Israel, now he's calling him Israel, in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. So, it goes back and forth, Jacob and Israel, because both were his names. Israel meant what Israel had become, what Jacob had become, that means a prevailer with God, Jacob is still his name. And he said, Here I am. And so he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. And I will go down with you to Egypt. And here God is saying something very, very uh, important for us to notice. God, in essence, is telling him, just like he's telling all of his descendants, that if you go down from this city to that city, I will be with you. If you go to another land, whether I sent you over there like into Egypt now, or let you on into captivity, I will go down with you. In other words, I will never reject you. I will never forsake you. I may have to punish you here and there, but I will never forsake you. Because he swore and he made a covenant that this will be his people, this will be his church, no matter what. Even death, a physical death for the Messiah, is not going to prevent that, because he's going to be resurrected, and the death, to begin with, was for the purpose of atoning for the sins of Israel, as well as the rest of humanity, and then bringing them back to him. And so he says to him, I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And that's exactly what he did, and that's what he's going to do in the future. And he's done it many times. And I will bring you back again, and Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. And so that is very important to remember this concept, that no matter what evils Jacob later on was going to commit, that is his descendants, God will never leave them, nor forsake them. If he has to send them down to Egypt or to Babylon or Syria or any other place, he's going to go down with them, he's going to be with them, and he's going to bring them back because they are his people forever. That's his church, the true church of God, forever. And then others that God had grafted into this community. And gradually, 
the ultimate purpose was that all of them will become spiritual. Sometimes, for a period of time, it was necessary that, uh, uh, to call others also to provoke them to jealousy, to bring, in, bring them back to him. But this people, this nation, this commonwealth of Israel, God never rejected. In other words, God never had another church in mind. And he made it very plain in hundreds of places. And we're going to see it from the beginning of the book until the end. And let's go now to Genesis 48, where we're going to read in verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father is sick, and he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, Look, your son Joseph is coming to you, and Israel strengthened himself and sat on the bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, or Luz, uh, which later on he changed to uh, Bethel, in the land of Canaan, and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a multitude of people, and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. In other words, now God, through Jacob, is being is passing on the information of the covenant and confirming the covenant also, and he's going to pass it on, not necessarily just to, to Joseph, but all of his people, the whole nation of Israel, but he's making a special covenant now with Joseph. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to, e to you to Egypt, that is in Egypt, are mine. In other words, I'm going to adopt them as Reuben, and Simeon, or Reuven, Reuven means see a son, and Shimon means God heard, and as Reuben and Simeon, they, are, they shall be mine. In other words, Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine just like Reuben, the firstborn, and Simeon, the secondborn, are mine. Now, he didn't say, I'm going to replace Reuben and Simeon with Ephraim and Manasseh. He said, like, these two sons are mine, firstborn and second, so your firstborn and second will also be mine. In other words, I'm going to adopt them. And he's going to adopt them for a good reason. Because he's going to pass on the birthright to them directly. To Ephraim and to Manasseh. And that's the reason why he adopted them, so that it can become a part of the nation of Israel. Or that became later on the nation of Israel. So, Joseph is not going to be divided into two tribes. And that's the reason why he adopted them, so they become become the part of the family of Israel, where all the other sons, of the, all the other uh, children that he had, that is uh, Jacob, that they were not in that category, in that sense. And so, we see, uh, verse 6, your offspring whom you beget after them shall be yours. And that is a very important point also, that whatever comes after them, they will be yours, just like all the other children of my children will be theirs. But these are having a purpose they are going to be joining the so-called the twelve tribes of Israel. And every single one of them will be a tribe. And those have eternal consequences also. And so we're going to see that later on, why this was necessary. And so all the children that will come after them will be yours. And they shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. But as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrat, and I buried her, well, he's telling you where he buried her, and then he's going to bless uh, his children. And so he's passing the everlasting covenant, a part of it is 
the birthright is passing it directly to the sons of Joseph, not to Joseph himself. Even though later on, Joseph again is mentioned as the one who is receiving it. But God had something in mind for these two sons of uh, Joseph, which now became the sons of Israel directly by adoption. In verse 15 to 16 we read, uh, And uh, he blessed Joseph, and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from evil, because now again Jacob is revealing, inspired by God, that this God that walked with him is also an angel. An angel of whom? An angel of obviously the, the other one that later on Christ came to reveal, who, of whom he said, he is greater than I am. That's why he became his messenger. And that's why the God can send the second being in the divine family as his messenger, and through him he's working out the whole purpose and destiny of men. And so he says, this God is the angel who redeemed me from all evil. And he says, this God and this angel, who is the same person, bless the lands. Let my name be named upon them. In other words, when he says God, he can refer to the Father, and when he says the angel, he can refer to the second divine being also. He says, let my name be named upon them, that is the name of Israel, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. In other words, they are going to be sons of my father, just like I am a son of my father, uh, that is Isaac and his father, Abraham. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now, some people develop the concept that uh, from now on, the name Israel is given only to the two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the rest are no longer Israel, which doesn't make sense at all. Uh, that is, only people who have partial knowledge and understanding say that. When you read the entirety of the story, you see it very plainly. That's not the way it is. Because later on, in the same account, God is revealing to us again what really was going on here. And so in verse 20, he says, Jacob continues. So he blessed him, that is Ephraim and Manasseh, that day, saying, by you, Israel will bless. So you see, he makes it very plain. He, he, he hadn't taken the name Israel and gave it only to Ephraim and Manasseh. He made it very plain. And some people don't like to pay attention to this verse. They just like to, to go on with a pet theory. That the name Israel was given only to Ephraim and Manasseh. So everywhere now they read Israel, they think only about Ephraim and Manasseh. And they don't realize all of them are Israel. Though the kingdom was divided into the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel, Ephraim was the head of the nation of all of Israel, the ten tribes. All of them were Israel. And then when they were taken to captivity, God began to call Judah as Israel, because now the others were gone. And so in verse 20, he said, So he blessed them and say, and, uh, that day, and saying, By you, Israel, that means by you, Ephraim and Manasseh, Israel, because all of them are Israel, will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh, and to this very day, in the Jewish community, that's the only place where you, re where you hear this blessing still being recited to this very day. And it's not among those who should have known better, Ephraim and Manasseh. None of them even know who they are. And so, that is extremely also uh, important for us to understand. It's not the uh, detail without meaning. It has a lot of meaning here. And so, we read in, uh, in verse 22, Jacob continues, moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers. That's what the birthright is all about. One portion extra. It's not that you get 90% and all the rest, you know, they go into poverty house. No, you get only one portion above. That's what the birthright is all about. 
And so when God gave the birthright to Ephraim and Manasseh, as time went by, you can see that even though all of Israel received their own lands, like in this land in particular, and even in the in, uh, so-called British Isles, you find also other tribes of Israel there. And then here, particularly in, in this land, the United States, where Israel, that is Manasseh, finally ended, you find all the tribes of Israel represented, you see. And you cannot say that Manasseh is the one that has the whole country for himself, when all the tribes of Israel are also heavily represented here. And so we have to read it in the context and not uh, misinformation. And so this is what he's saying. In verse 23, he's revealing also something very important that we may not realize until you read the account very carefully. The thing that Jacob just lived in a little town someplace in the land of Canaan here and there, and that was uh, all, and you know, he was a shepherd and his sons were shepherds. No, God is telling us here something very important, that Jacob didn't have an easy time, and Isaac didn't have an easy time. They constantly had to contend with the, with the people around them, and that's why he told Abraham, your descendants are going to be sojourners, and they're going to be persecuted for a period of 400 years. And so in verse 22, we read, Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. You see, he was fighting for it. He had wars going on here and there. And uh, earlier, God did not choose uh, to record it, but history records that in Josephus, you can see. Uh, these people had to go through war. And in the Psalms, God is mentioning that also. For he was warning all the nations around them, don't touch my prophets, these are my holy ones. This is my people, this is my church. Don't lay your hands on them. And yet here and there they had some persecution, they had to go to war. And that is a very uh, important clue also to the way God does things. He blesses his people, but as he said later on, I will give you all these blessings with persecution. And there is a purpose for persecution. As uh, the, the psalm will tell us that the, that the rod of the wicked will not cease, will not be uh, over, you know, in other words, oh, the lot of the righteous will always be there. And the reason for that is so that the righteous will not put his hand into wickedness. In other words, persecution has a purpose to purify the people of God, the church of God. And since we've reached now the end of the tape, I'll say greetings to all of God's people. This is Mordecai Joseph. Until next time. The preceding message was taken from the World Wide Website at address www.biblestudy.org. This site is sponsored by Barnabas Ministries. Bible Study. You have questions? The Bible has answers.